Is everyone uh, comfortable? Is everyone sitting down now so we can begin our... Oh, okay. Do you want to wait? Good evening. My name is Patricia Bosworth. I'm a member of the Penn Board, and on behalf of Penn, I want to welcome you here to the New Writers Series. This is the the seventh, I believe, and uh, the others have been enormously popular. I'm sure this is going to be too. Um, the purpose is, of course, as you know, to introduce new writers to the public. We're going to be listening some wonderful things tonight, and uh, we want to thank the the Endicott Bookstore for allowing us to have this reading here. It's such a beautiful room, beautiful bookstore, wonderful addition to New York life, uh, and especially to uh, Encarnita Quinlan and Susan Bergholtz for their, their great help and, and support. And um, I guess we'll start first with uh, Frank McShane, who's going to introduce our, our first writer. Frank? One of the, oh, I should do this. <laughs> One of the pleasures, and they're not uh, uh, innumerable, of teaching writing is uh, to find someone whose work you really admire very much and who comes, uh, even in, in this, the case of Mian Ng, uh, who even arrived uh, with a, a considerable uh, degree of achievement as a writer. And uh, to be able to... Uh, to introduce to a, an audience uh, someone whose work you admire, a young writer, a beginning writer, is is always a great uh, pleasure, far more so than, than, shall we say, someone who's already well-established and so forth, in which you, uh, he, he or she speaks for himself. Uh, my introduction uh, that I'd planned has all been printed up already in the, in the uh, announcement of the biographies of the various readers, so I won't say anything about that. But I will say a word or two about how we met and uh, how, uh, what I think of Mien's work, and one or two comments on that. Uh, Mien's, what we do at Columbia with the writing in the writing program is that the students or the applicants send their manuscripts, and they're read by the, by the faculty in, in advance. And when this particular application arrived, I was immediately struck by a number of different things. Uh, the particularity, the vividness of the descriptions of the place, and without knowing anything about it, I, I thought that this was a writer of real power, of real strength, and real power of observation. And then when... Uh, uh, and so it was obvious that she was she was a real thing. It's this doesn't happen very often, but it does when it does happen, and you see a writer, and you can say yes, this is this is a writer. There's no question about it. And and one is always very pleased, and because it's not, as I say, a, a commonplace thing to happen. Uh, then Mian arrived in New York, and she was completely alone, and came uh, to New York for the first time ever from a background uh, from which was uh, hardly prepared her for the pleasantries of New York in midwinter, uh, coming from San Francisco, where she had already demonstrated a good deal of independence by um, moving from Chinatown, where she was brought up, into the 
uh, world of the uh, the wicked white men on the outskirts <laughs> of the of the of Chinatown, and went to the University of California at Berkeley, where she studied with Len Mike, Lenny Michaels, among other people, and then decided. And it's not an easy thing to do, and it's a rather brave thing to do, I think, simply to come 3,000 miles away from home, completely alone, not knowing a soul <coughs> in New York, and settling down and deciding to be a, uh, to do all she could to improve her, her skills as a writer. Well, as I say, they were quite evident from the beginning, but uh, one noticed the change uh, as the as the months went by, because I think if one comes from what seems to other people as a rather exotic world, uh, it's it's rather easy for that writer to deal or trade on that exoticism. That is to say, if you are well, just let's use this particular case, not use analogous analogous ones. Uh, for um, most Westerners, Chinatown is a very exotic and strange and romantic place. And mere reference to that and to the people there and to the various things that happen uh, can be used in as, as, an, as a way of getting the story or the stories or the novel, whatever is being written, uh, off. <coughs> but I think uh, what has happened in the, in the time that I've known Nian is that she has, there was a bit of reliance on that, but by now, she has long since left it to one side, and what she's writing about, and this makes her, I think, an important writer, is about the experience of Chinatown in purely human uh, um, terms. There's no, and there's no longer is there any reliance, any particular uh, nod or, or gesture simply to atmosphere, simply to the background. She is talking very seriously about what happens, the truth about. Uh, the people who live there and the people whom she's observed and grown up with. And that, of course, is the essence, of, I think, of good writing, clear observation, honest observation. And I think I've said enough and would like now to introduce Nianin. <laughs> something short which talks about that real particular world. Then I'll go into something which um, um, will just show the desire to move out. I grew with them, old men growing older, old men living younger days. I breathed old men dreams. I was the young girl watching old men die. At the street corners, they colored Chinatown, flocks of them gathering, with round-topped hats, wide lapels, double-breasted jackets, and stick canes, stick canes that they held with two hands. I watched them, old men growing older, old men waiting for lost young days, old men trying to remember the first young dream. I laid them down, lifted old heads, fist-pounded old bones, winded bones, rubbed their backs with open palms, closed fingers, held the tin spittings for the waist. Flocks of them, in gathers, at corners, laughing, looking, a sigh, a smoke, twitching the eyes, 
old men like pigeons. My first dead man, a lump in the street. Rope. My first dead man, shadow in the alley. Door. My first dead man, cries in the gutter. Echo. My first dead man, a man begging for ears. Heart. They say in my village I heard a man bleeds before a man cries. Old men, all dead. Old men, all mine. Old men turning, knowing faces, nodding to the heavens, knowing faces with long hearts. Old men, all dead. Old men, all mine. Old men like pigeons still gather to sigh for earth, to mourn for a heaven. Old men are pigeons, brimmed hats and wide-gathered pants, a coo in their mouth, a coo for song, and knowing long eyes. Pigeon eyes, they said, of me I saw with pigeon eyes. Old men, all dead, looked into my eyes, saw what I looked for. Old men, all mine. In Ching's room, October 31st, Sunday, he, that stepfather, came back. We'll call it in Detroit, he says. Well, why not stay there for all, always then? But when winter time comes, he comes. I don't like it one bit. But what can I say? I just have to stay in my room all the time. That's all. Anyways, this is not a bad room. Actually, it's the best room of all because it gets natural light. And that's pretty good for an alley. And it's a pretty safe alley because there's a street lamp right out in front. The only bad thing is that it faces Washington. And all those cable cars mow up and down all day long, clanging the bell, carrying those litterbug tourists. And they swing from the poles screaming like a bunch of crazies. And all the time they're clicking their cameras, like we on the street are the funny looking ones. November 1st, Monday. I can't flunk bonehead English again. It will be the third time if I do. So maybe I should try to make a rule so I can make myself concentrate better. How about if I make a rule to think and write and dream in English until I pass? I know what, in this room, I will have that rule. This is good because that way I can say anything about that old buzzard and it won't matter because he can't understand a word, sight or sound, even though he's been here for 45 years. Still November 1st. Again, Ma asked me, please, Ha-Ching, please come and eat with us. Eat outside with us. It's better. She talks always like that. 
with those puffy eyes. What about him, I shout. I won't go out there. I won't eat my rice with that face staring at me. So Ma will just have to bring me my rice with my food in the bowl because I won't even step outside except to go to the bathroom. I know he don't like it, but I don't care. I can hear everything from my room. He says a lot of garbage, but I just don't care. He just thinks that because I don't sit out there with him, I'm scared of him. I'm not. I just don't want to look at his fat, ugly body and listen to his stupid garbage talk. He talks so lousy with the food falling out of his mouth all the time. It makes me sick to think about it. Actually, it makes me want to throw up. <laughs> and you know the way he spreads his newspapers out? It's like he thinks it's a tablecloth. And then he plops his elbows on top of it and reads, just like a savage. No one would believe it if I told them. That thing doesn't even think about other people. Just goes and covers up all the food so you can't get any, unless you dig under his nose. Probably that's what he wants, for us to ask him for this bit and that more so. I mean, really, when you think about it, he has no manners, Chinese or American. He goes and picks the first pieces, and then he chews and spits out the bones, and then he puts his chopsticks in before anybody else can. I mean, sometimes I just want to reach over and knock his rice bowl out. I mean, how is a person supposed to eat like that? And he uses his sleeves to wipe his lips. It's like eating with the vomit stuck in your throat. You can't get it out. And you can't swallow it down. That's probably how he looked tonight when he yelled about me. Yeah, I know how he was sitting, like a dead bear, with his flabby butt flopping over his chair, and his slipper half on and half off, and his steamy glasses sliding up and down his nose, and him shoveling the rice into that cave mouth, making all the slurpy noises, all the while looking like a butchered pig gasping for air, and I bet you anything that he waves those chopsticks around. Yeah, for sure. I heard him say, what's wrong with her? What does she huddle in her room doing? Why so precious and private? Why act like her handmaiden, carrying her food in and out? Does she shit in there too? Do you carry that out too? Is she the new Empress Dowager? Do you care? When did they crown her? Why wasn't I invited? Is the Buddha Highness with a headache today? Is she afraid I'll eat her? I can hear everything from my room. I heard it all, and Ma just laughed. <coughs> As usual, she don't have a thing to say for anything, not even for herself just a big ha-ha for the air. Well, I don't care what she says, and I don't care what she can't say. I could have yelled something back, but he's a stupid thing, a ghost thing, not even worth a breath. Grandma will come, and she will spend the night. She always don't trust him. She put one of those hook locks on my door. 
Every time when he's here, she tell me, Aching, be careful. Door and window. Check three times before going to bed. November 5th, Saturday. Doris is coming tomorrow. I bet her English is better than mine. It's really too bad she couldn't get into the university, but that's Hong Kong for you. It's crowded, crowded, crowded. Never enough for anybody. November 6th, Sunday. Doris is here, and she looks pretty much the same. Her mother is a little fatter. Next year, Doris says she will bring her father, but from the way she said it, it sure didn't sound like she wanted to. He never did anything for the family, and I have no feelings for him. He always cared more for gambling and drinking than eating, even for himself, not to mention the family. You should see him. You should see how sickly he is, all skinny and yellow, without a bit of color. I have no heart for him, because he doesn't even have it for himself. She said that when he sees a gambling house, he is like a dog starved. November 7th, Monday. Doris stay with me in my room. I give her my bed and I sleep on the short sofa that Ma and that me and Grandma found on Market Street. We dragged it home, Grandma at the back end, pushing it, saying, just like a farmer pushing a cow to market, and me pulling at it and getting my foot caught a lot. We laughed, so it took a long time. When we got to the Stockton Tunnel, we had to take a rest, so we stopped and sat down. We watch all the cars and buses go by, honking and beeping. I waved and Grandma laughed. <coughs> November 10th, Thursday. The way I see it, it's better just to forget about studying. With all this traffic in and out of my room, it's almost impossible to even think. And it's pretty hard to hold on to that rule about English. Before, nobody came into this room but me. Now, I have no control. Well, I guess... I will try to write all this garbage in English. November 12th, Saturday. Actually, there was a special reason for this trip. I didn't know about it until today. Doris and her mother came especially to pay respects to grandfather. But I don't understand why they did it, because neither of them met the old guy. So I don't know why it's such a big deal to come around the world just to put some plastic flowers at somebody's grave. But they're here, and boy, did they make a show out of it. There was already a big blue fire roaring in the can, and incense stuck in the dirt. There was a chicken and homemade good luck cakes, and oranges that kept rolling down the hill. Did they have to knock their heads three times to the ground? I mean, nobody has to carry the ceremony that far. This is the U.S. of A. And it's no big deal to do that kind of stuff here. But both Doris and Second Act cried and cried, saying that the old man died for nothing, lived for nothing, and left nothing but a broken son, all twisted bad. When I think about it, it's all kind of odd. 
Doris never knew her grandfather, but she came around the world to burn incense for him. Sakananko never met his father, but he just spent his money all the same. What are fathers for? I don't know. I think they're just garbage trouble. November 19th, Saturday. Big Ant and Ma fight again. They always fight. Big Ant said that Ma is stupid. And that she's, what is that called? I guess it means something like she made ruin of me. See, see, look what you did. She is like that because of you. As usual, she just sat there and stared away. Most I see her do is cry with her mouth open and rub her eyes with her palm. November 25th, Friday. I keep thinking about what Big Aunt said. Choosing that? No wonder you have this. Well, I really don't know what she's talking about. I know it's about my father, but I really don't know what she means. I only have pictures of him, and I can't find anything bad or mean in his face. My father, my real one, he lives in South America, in Brazil. I think Big Ant said that he had a wife there, too. She said that he had one in China when he married my mother in Hong Kong. That makes three. Big Ant is always scolding my mother for that, saying that it was a waste for my mother even to breathe. How much stupider can you get to go and marry someone else's husband? In Hong Kong, I wrote letters to him. Sometimes he wrote back. Sometimes he sent money. Every spring, we sent him a new picture of me in the school uniform and a new haircut. But that was in Hong Kong. That was all when I was just a kid. December 3rd, Saturday. Yesterday, I slept very late. I woke up because I heard Ma, Grandma, and Big Aunt talking about me. Better think of what to do with her. What is she going to do when she gets older? What is she going to do when you're dead? Better to think now. Right back to Hong Kong. See if there's anyone there that wants her. Chances are better now that she's young. Because there, you'll always find someone who's desperate to come to America. There's not much hope to get anyone here. These American-borns are too picky. I stay in bed until Big Aunt leaves. Sometimes I get so mad at Mom. She never says anything. I mean, that's how she wants it. Why did she have me in the first place? Why didn't she have that stupid abortion? I don't talk to her at all. <coughs> I only leave my room to go to the bathroom. At dinner time, we eat alone because that thing went to Oakland to do who cares what. <laughs> I eat outside, but I don't say a thing. I just eat. She went out and bought a drumstick of a duck, but I don't care how she tried to say she's sorry. I'm still mad. I don't even take the salted fish for myself. She picked a piece and took out the bones with her chopsticks and put the tiny sliver of meat on top of my rice. I flick it around and bury it. I don't suck the duck bone clean because I want to waste her money. I don't look at her. I drink the soup without spoon. She sighed. She said, don't blame me, Chi. Don't blame your mother. I don't say a word. I just go to my room. I slam my door, and I don't come out even when I hear her crying. 
December 10th, Saturday. This morning when I was still asleep, that thing pushed at my door. Lucky I remembered to put the lock on before I went to sleep. He jiggled my door so hard my window shaped, but I tried to be still. I pulled the blanket over my head. Later I told Grandma. She said she will come over and sleep on the sofa. Ha, that thing won't like it one bit. Grandma's snores will go right through the door. January 21st, Friday. I got into a fight with that thing. I'm so mad because he ruined my concentration today. He said that I was too secretive. You aren't a goat piece, you know. Don't think that just because you go to school and you know this English, that you're better than me. Remember that without me, you and your ma would both be in the gutter. Remember, you're no high-born princess. You're no gold piece. I shouted back, shut up, you old bag of wind. You're the useless one. Look at you. Been here for 45 years, and the best you can do is wash dishes and scrub toilets. He hit me. I screamed. You're so stupid, you still can't say yes. From, you can't tell yes from no unless the head shakes or nods with the word. He hit me again, and this time I hit him back. I ran. I went into my room. I slammed the door. But before I could get the hook into the lock, he pushed the door open. He pushed me, and I fell. I kicked him, and I ran out of the apartment. I went to the library and didn't even come back for dinner. I think Ma's so stupid to stay with him. I told her, and as usual, she don't have a word to say. Can't even take a breath one way or the other about it. Just a stupid sigh and a weepy eye. Ah, oh, Ching, what can I do? So what if I don't pass Bonehead? I'll get a good job. I'll save a lot of money, and I'll get out of this stupid alley. The only thing for me is to finish school fast so that I can work. I waste too much time already, and I feel guilty. Next week, I will go look for a job. I'd rather do that, because money coming in is more real than words in the head. You can save both. But well, as the old-timers say, you can't eat words, but you sure can eat interests. Donald, I was asked to introduce myself, but it seems to me that introductions of the introducer plus of the introducee might make this an endless necklace of introductions, so I think I'll stop with that and say that um, it was interesting to me the way Frank talked about uh, spotting uh, that special thing in a, in a student uh, during the process of looking at applications, which uh, certainly happened with, with Katie Cole's manuscript 
among many good ones, very good ones, uh, it did it did kind of jump out. Uh, although, as I used, I teach now at the University of Houston, where Katie's a student. And um, do I need to talk into this mic more, or is it all right? Okay. Um, a little more. Okay. Okay. It's such a hunchy business. Thanks. Um, and, uh, but this was is my old neighborhood. I'm a New Yorker, and my old apartment is around the corner on 79th Street between Columbus and Amsterdam. And it's only tonight, although I come back here fairly often, that I knew this bookstore was here. So my degree of perspicacity is definitely suspect. I hope that I notice poets with more alacrity than I notice bookstores, which I also love. Um, I did notice Katie, and what I'd noticed then, I still notice. Her work achieves um, the tensions that I think all uh, poems need uh, by being both beautiful and in some way threatening at the same time. Uh, at moments of menace uh, in the poems, for example, when the Christmas goose is going to be killed, or when a hostage is being held captive in a store, uh, the word gentle and the, a kind of uh, luminous gentleness will come in and pull against that very threatening situation. Um, and when lovers come together or other moments where that kind of sweet luminosity would be appropriate uh, or expected, say, uh, in this white air or in anything around me, the goldfish, lovely and pure in its clarified world, these rooms are filled with glass and light. Um, this passage with its evocation of light and clarity uh, translucences which seem to me to pervade American poetry at the moment uh, could pass as a kind of lovely accomplished lyricism and probably did until we discover it's the rapist's wife speaking which to me does provide that kind of pull that surprise such discrepancies plus many others which you'll discover for yourself, many other wonders in her work, I think I'll leave to her to provide for you as she reads. I'm happy to introduce Katie Coles. Thank you, Cynthia. Can everyone hear me? If I just stand, okay. Um, I'm grateful um, for Cynthia's introduction, partly because now I don't have to apologize about the violence in the first little part of this reading, so I'm just going to go right into it. The occasion of this first poem is uh, Greek Easter Eve, and the title means many years. It's a sort of catch-all holiday greeting in Greek. 
Lambs on their thin legs bob and sway as they nuzzle the new grass. The women, having also shaken the barren season, rose hours ago. Their laughter drifts through open windows, the spoons clatter. I have wandered away from that, from the carrots laid on a white counter, the shallots piled, lemons thin-edged smell, to where men take turns sharpening knives. Blades ripple in the sunlight, and the lambs bare their teeth, searching the most tender shoots. I want to take a lamb in my arms, feel its throat for the place the blood pushes, but I am only a guest. My lover glances at me, then away, and his mother watches from the window. I imagine she wants to call me in. Two men take a lamb, how willingly it folds into their hands, and as my lover coaxes back its head, the woman in the window drops her eyes to her work, a tomato falling into halves, the bright open heart. I have a propensity for reading brand new untested poems at readings, and this is one. It's called uh, The Scientist's Daughter Describes the End of the Earth as She Knows It. Waking, I counted cracks in the ceiling, the house settling into mobile ground, and recited the ages of the buckling earth, fissures, how one great plate grinds over another, the science of violence, names of stones I could pocket, obsidians, some snowflaked, all the quartzes, the shining pyrites. How long could my neighborhood last? My father, the other shirtless fathers, up already, loosening green rolls of sod, women calling over fences, shaking dirt from the roots of dandelions, the fault holding still through another morning, so much stone the earth balanced there. Light, color so precise I articulated in numbers, violet, blue, the spectrum to red dazzling the chandelier. The sun, too, moved every moment toward extinction, contraction, a final brilliant flare, and romance, the earth flaming up in sympathy, a consuming passion. Then the body's changes, mechanics of desire. Here the body arches to fill its surrounding sense. I thought I would find love, too, precise, that dignity, my body's explosions controlled and measurable. Our courtship I imagined as orbit, a slow dance, the globe spinning perfect and self-contained, hard as stone, a geode, its secrets hidden in layers of crystal. You said no, hard as a planet's center under pressure, the fire building up in the core, beginning its steady travel outward toward the surface language. Your hands taught me what only the heart can translate to the body, the heart mutable or open in halves, the body listening, poised, the body shifting and everything burning for this, the destruction it is moved toward for light years. The Evidence the bad patch of cells is only the size of a button, but as she moves, she believes she can feel it, 
the way we knew things because we are told, the way we learned faith, shifting in her pelvis like an olive in the bottom of a jar. The cells are excited by the one word they know, create. They never wonder at their limited vocabulary as a child calls everything by the first word it learns. But the possibilities of language can always increase. While confined to her body, these cells, every division reduces the room for growth. She feels like a housing project. What could drive a cell to excess to create more cells than the body makes room for? In most of us, they divide sedately, with only the mild excitement over an act accomplished in the usual way that would account for the trembling as two move apart that were recently one. She thinks of how everything living must feed, as common cells make planets of us and become our flora and fauna. But they are quiet inhabitants, the pathology here created in her own cells as division multiplies, her body defeating itself with cheerful abandon in a kind of espionage. It is more the way soil is a pathological condition of rocks as it breaks them down to create a habitation for excuse me, as a habitation for plants which themselves will feed on the minerals and put out flowers, all the evidence in those pale, delicate scars. Um, this poem is one that Cynthia referred to. Um, I'm from a fairly small city in the West where everybody is safe most of the time. And when I moved to Houston, Texas, one of the things that I had to make accommodations for was um, the fact that you're just, you can't assume that you're safe everywhere you go. Um, and I haven't quite accommodated to that, but I'm getting better. Probably most of you, or definitely most of you, have more of that experience than I do. But one thing that happened was around the corner from my house, there was a hostage taken and all sorts of hoopla about that. And in the meantime, a several block area around my house was barricaded off and there was no traffic or anything permitted in there. And in a way, it was sort of wonderful. Um, because I am used to quiet and I rediscovered it during that time and also wondered what was going on around the corner from my house. And this is called... On the day a man took a woman hostage into the porn shop around the corner. Those who wanted only to pass through the neighborhood instead go around the barricades, my, bo my block lovely in absence of its usual din. Even lovelier, the tumult of light in the trees and the wind for once audible in its daily pleasure, playing chimes and rattling leaves across the potholed streets. Today, all is noise, or rather what usually goes unheard becomes clamorous and demanding. What went unheard in the morning traffic, the mundane backfires, the fury, were the gunshots, I don't know how many, or whether among the bright peat booths and hopeless open mouths around the corner, the man and woman speak as carefully as lovers courting or keep their peace, the angles of their faces turned from each other as articulate as geometry. I wonder if she's given up searching the racks for a paper she might turn through casually, while she tells him how she takes weather personally and what she divined for herself this morning 
from the hale bruised geranium petals on her porch. This afternoon, light arrives barely ahead of the clouds turning over in the south. Tonight's rain will be quiet and persistent, and if I wake, or if they are wakeful, as they must be, we may all find comfort in how water refracts the red and blue lights sweeping our windows. For now, the voice of the city comes from a great distance, and I imagine the man's voice telling the woman, shut up, I never wanted to hurt you, grows intimate and maybe almost gentle. Christmas Goose As dusk came into the shed, you closed your eyes and used your fingers to choose, your hands vanishing under wings and downy bellies. All the way home, the burlap sack jerked next to our feet, and in the light of one bulb in your garage, you pulled the neck tight, released it, stretched it again. <coughs> I took my first whiskey straight from the bottle, then passed it, wondering if your father, before he left, had taught you more than ritual. I went outside with Leslie and a boy she would later love briefly in his turn. We breathed into our hands, and he broke off frozen twigs from the lilac. He still believed we could cure each other's solitude. We all believed it. But years after, when he died, perhaps on purpose, you would say it had been just a matter of time. You remember how he stayed outside with the girls, then vomited anyway when you told us how, for moments after, the beak opened and closed until at last you held it shut as hard as you could. Leslie studied the workbench, dark spots on the concrete, and you held my shoulders as tight as I could stand and joked that maybe even I had had her. None of us thought it might be true someday, though it would be she who would have me stirring in my skin for the first time before she sent me back to boys who hadn't learned yet to use their hands gently on others. That night, intact, tentative under our big coats, we couldn't imagine how easily we would pass from hand to hand or even what might occur to us the next afternoon as we bowed our heads and your mother offered up the platter before starting it, laden on its journey down the length of the table. The violence is over. <laughs> this, I'm, I'm reading this poem by request. It's for a good friend of mine who couldn't be here tonight. It's called In Lavender for Kay. When the storm finally reached us, the hard earth flooded with rain, and everywhere women lifted their bright skirts and pushed away toward home. In the desert, we forget what rain will bring, worms like broken letters on the walks, unfamiliar green, the places rain goes when the earth won't pull it in. Sitting with you in a cafe in the desert, I watched rain come for miles, the valley split, half in sunlight. You wore lavender, or perhaps in the rain behind you the mountains turned lavender, I can't remember, and you said the rain follows you, even here. We didn't have it right, our relationship to water. We still don't. 
Where I live now, daylight and twilight with rain vary only in shades of lavender. And I think how memory may at once hold us together and create unimaginable distances. I had thought that rain was our difference, but now I remember you running out to it, uncovering your hair, the gradual darkening of your lavender blouse, how it clung to you. And I'd like to finish with a poem um, called Distances. I think this is a more common phenomenon, or I understand from people who talk to me about it with women than with men, that there's a sort of an alter ego that we imagine um, is ourselves as we're crossing a room or as we're hoping that we look a particular way. When I was 15, I thought that if my legs were two inches longer, my whole life would be completely different and and transformed entirely for the better. And uh, I, I have friends who say, who is this woman in your poems? And, and that's who she is. So um, that's who the woman is in this poem. It's called Distances. I am angry at you and all the lovers who have let me leave them in their wonderful cold cities. And I want to bear like a fine coffee the aromas of warm countries where I've yet to land, Guatemala, Arabia, even France, whose light is my favorite legend. Sometimes I think of you as a bright color on the map, a countryside abundant with cool forests and sunny, intimate rooms, a northern country from which I get postcards saying, come back, I am large enough for us both. In a strange city without you, I invent, as I make up the bed, my most lovely imaginable self, a woman men would arrive at, then pull back, too full of her and themselves to touch her. They could hardly bear her careless shoulders, lamplight's tender motion on her blouse. I myself have courted her, have raised her perfect into afternoon's thickening air. I have made her a woman even you might follow into hot climates, to whose bed you would bring translucent china in the morning, cheese heavy with garlic, papayas waiting to come to the knife. I know her charm, how she warms it in her palm, turns it to luck in a flash of fingers and light, turns it to cruelty or the smallest kind afterthought. That woman means you some delicate harm, and me she will never release, perhaps at a party long enough to set a gesture spinning in my own mind, or perhaps for the kind of momentary love that makes me consider all the distances breaking open our hearts, I might rise briefly into her, only to fall back again to my own inconsolable body. Thank you. I seem to be a teacher, uh, uh, sometime teacher. I taught for the first time five years ago at Columbia, uh, invited by Frank McShane, 
and uh, if, if, this, if this game of presentations were to go on, he could present me, actually. Uh, the, uh, he invited me to come to Columbia, and I did. And the first thing I was given was a box of manuscript uh, and asked to read it. It was an application for readmission from a student who had been in the program, left the program, and wanted to come back. And I read uh, part of a novel called Marrying Gary and immediately recommended the readmission of the student. The student then turned out to be Janet and turned out to be, uh, turned up in my translation workshop. So I knew her as first as, well, first as this anonymous novelist and then as a translator from the Chinese, which it was hard to justify and it was hard to put together the author of this novel, which you will be hearing a bit of this evening, and this shy, earnest Chinese translator. Uh, since then, I've read other uh, works of Janet's, and each one seems to pr present a new and somewhat uh, startling sometimes personality. Anyway, um, uh, I thought she was extremely talented, <coughs> both as a translator and as a writer. Um, she seems to have given up translation, but I'm happy to say she's gone on writing. And uh, here she is. I'm reading from a novel called Mary and Gary, which takes place on the Upper West Side, which many of you may be familiar with, in restaurants and bars. Um, although the title is Mary and Gary, it's really about a woman who doesn't marry Gary, but discovers in these restaurants and bars people, other people that have meant more to her than Gary, um, people that she's known from her past, each of whom have their own favorite restaurants that she goes to to eat with them at. So let me just, this, um, this comes from a portion sort of towards the middle of the book. And the chapters are generally named for the names of, of the restaurants, but this particular one isn't. Just Gary. What was life going to be like with Just Gary? I twisted my ring around on my finger. I tried to look at each facet. I could only count 15. My room sure was, <laughs> my room sure was dirty. I was lying on my mattress, alternately counting facets and looking at the mess, thinking maybe I ought to do something about cleaning it up. All around my bed were papers, things I had been working on, weeks ago, the other night, all mixed together. Dirty cups. A roach crawled out of one of them. Two dead roaches were floating around in the three-day-old coffee in another. Roaches drown, drown themselves in search of water. They like water and grease. Harry told me that. Roaches have plenty to eat. They can eat wood, paper. What they need, he said, is water and grease for some reason. Well, they had all they needed to survive right here in my room. <laughs> plenty of paper and water, maybe even grease. I didn't know. The phone rang. Hello, Marcy. Gary, said the voice. Hi, Gary. We sold the menopause book, said Gary. Congratulations, I said. Uh, you going to be on the phone long, Marcy? said George L., poking his head around the corner. Looking at George L., I said to Gary, Excuse me, Gary, I can't talk now. I was just about to go out. 
Where are you going, said Gary. I have to pick up a manuscript, I lied. Still working at night, eh? Well, sometimes. Where do you have to go to pick it up? To 79th Street, I said, thinking fast. That's near teachers, said Gary. Would you like me to meet me? Would you like to meet me for dinner for dinner afterwards? I guess I'd better not, Gary, I said. I ought to do some work on it tonight. Oh, said Gary. George L. had seated himself at the kitchen table. He was tapping his foot on the floor. You know how it is when deadline time comes, I said. Oh, sure, said Gary. I'll call you tomorrow. On Wednesday night, I removed the ring before I went to bed. It was the first time I had taken it off except to show it to people or to wash my hands. I decided it was uncomfortable to sleep in. On Thursday morning, I put it back on and went to work. No one there noticed it anymore, but I did. I watched it as I wrote letters at my typewriter. It flashed across the keys. I watched it glitter and twinkle as I, edited, as I handed an edited manuscript to Sharon to type. It looked like a very heavy ring. On Thursday night, I again removed the ring before I went to bed. I was lying on my mattress holding it in my hand and counting the facets, this time coming up with 16. I could hear Harry strumming his bass in the living room. As usual, neither George P. nor George L. was around. I put the ring down on my second-hand library file card cabinet, which functioned as a night table. On Friday morning, I overslept and left the house in a rush. I forgot to wear the ring. Where's your ring? asked Sharon. I forgot it, I said. The Abbey. An old-fashioned dinner around the kitchen table, just like we used to do. Andy was the one of my old boyfriends who had gotten along best with my roommates. I would invite Andy. I hadn't told Andy of my engagement yet. He'd been out of town for over three weeks. Once he'd called me from Boston, but I hadn't mentioned it then. It had seemed like a hard thing to say over the phone long distance. Not that I'd thought Andy would be brokenhearted. Predictably, he was not. Andy's favorite place to be, apart from our living room and his bedroom, was a place called the Abbey. So that's where we went the night he returned from Boston. I'd offered to make dinner, but Andy had made some snide remark about not being up for tuna fish casserole. We agreed to meet at the Abbey. The Abbey is long, thin, and dark. It has tables with white linen tablecloths, heavy plates, and heavy silverware, a touch of ersatz elegance that doesn't really change it from being just another neighborhood bar. A spinach salad costs a dollar more at the Abbey than it does at the library. This may have changed since. <laughs> um, I ordered a spinach salad and French onion soup. Andy said that sounded good. He'd have that, too. And a carafe of rosé, he told the waiter. How is George, asked Andy, when the waiter had gone. George P. and Andy were old friends from the political science department at Columbia, which meant they were also tooth-and-nail competitors. I bet, I bet anything that what Andy wanted to know was whether George P. was impressed that he had had an interview for a job at Harvard. George is fine, I said. He's in love. In love, said Andy, all attention. I had more than a suspicion that they were rivals in that area, too. In love, he repeated. Who? Not Nina. Nina was a woman from the political science department whom both Andy and George had dated. George had gone out with her right up until the time he met Leonora. The wine and onion soup arrived. No, not Nina, I said, pouring wine into Andy's glass, then mine. Her name is Leonora. She works for Vogue. Vogue? Vogue? What's that? You know, the magazine. She has a really good job there as a staff writer. You ought to see the way she dresses. And she lives on the east side, and she's gorgeous. She has long blonde hair. She smiles constantly and has perfect teeth. And George. George is in a daze. I've never seen him like this before. Actually, I never see him. He's always at her place. When did this happen, said Andy, frowning, picking up his spoon. Only a few weeks ago, I said, around when you left. 
So she's really gorgeous, huh? And she works for Vogue? What does she see in George? <laughs> That's what I'd like to know, I said, with a vehemence that surprised me. Actually, though, George is rather attractive when he's not being hostile and belligerent. Actually, well, good for George, said Andy gamely. Good for old George. I didn't want to talk about George. Did you get the job, do you think, I said? I didn't want to talk about that either. I think so, I'm pretty sure, said Andy, his, lies, his eyes lighting up. Did you meet with what's-his-name, the one you admire so much, Ratchet? What did he say? Oh, Ratchet. Marty, Marcy, it was beautiful. He loved me, I'm sure of it. We talked and talked. Did you know he was trained as a dentist? No, of course you wouldn't. But Ellsworth Martin Ratchet, but, Ells, but Ellsworth Morton Ratchet, a dentist? We talked about dentistry, about practical education. But what about political science? What about your job? Well, he seemed to think I had it. That's what he said. As long as I get the dissertation finished and defended in time, I guess I'll get it. The chair, a research fellow at Harvard, me. Say, do you think George will be in tonight? <laughs> no. Too bad. Andy, actually, I was thinking of making a dinner next weekend. Would you like to come? I thought maybe I'd ask George to bring Leonora, and George Lombard could bring someone if he liked, and Harry, of course, as long as it isn't tuna fish, Andy said. We walked the several blocks to Andy's place. It was at 94th and Broadway, only a block from my apartment. It was cold. Andy put his arm around me. My whole body shivered. He pulled me closer. Andy pulled off his clothes and got in bed. I stood there and watched him. He turned on his reading light and picked up a book that had been lying on his night table. It was Political One by Ellsworth Morton Ratchet. He looked up at me. What are you standing there for, Marcy? He turned back down to the book. Andy, I said. What, he said, setting the book down in his stomach. I'm getting married, I said. You are what, said Andy? What? When did this happen? Who are you marrying? Are you serious? I have a ring, I said. I just didn't wear it. A ring, he said. What's that got to do with it? How can you get married? How can it have happened so fast? It didn't happen so fast, I said. I've known him for two years. You've known who for two years, said Andy. Well, you were going to move up to Boston, and you never said anything about, about, I stopped wondering why I'd said that. What's that got to do with anything, said Andy? What's going on? I go to Boston for three weeks, and suddenly everybody is married. Marcy, you still haven't told me who. Is it that slick law student with the stammer, that, what's that idiot's name, Kevin? He's all wrong for you, Marcy. <laughs> no, that's right, you haven't known him for two years, said Andy. How did you know about him anyway, I asked. George, of course. Good old George. He told you I was seeing Kevin? Oh, come on, Marcy, it's not a state secret. Who the fuck are you marrying? His name is Gary. Gary? Gary. Gary what? Gary Wolf. Who the fuck is Gary Wolf? So I guess we shouldn't sleep together anymore as I'm engaged. Are you insane? I've never heard of Gary Wolf. Why should you? <laughs> Why should you have? You've been going out on me, huh? That's ridiculous. You just told me you knew I was seeing Kevin, and you've never made any secret of the fact that you go out with 50 million women, anyone you can get your hands on. That's true, said Andy, smiling. <laughs> he was extremely proud of his prowess with women. Marcy, said Andy, the only person you've known for two years is me. There is no Gary Wolf. This is some kind of an insane joke. If you'd known Gary Wolf for two years, I would have known about it. You've never so much as mentioned a Gary Wolf. George has never mentioned Gary Wolf. <laughs> the kitchen. Our kitchen is very large. In it were me frying tuna fish steaks, Harry tossing a salad, George L. sitting at the table and drinking glass after glass out of a gallon jug of wine, 
Leonora putting whipped cream in elegant-looking pastry shells, which she had made herself, with something that looked like a syringe, which she had brought with her. <laughs> Andy, buttering garlic bread. And George P. swearing at a bowl of potatoes, which he was trying to mash with an egg beater. George had given up on using the egg beater in the way it had been designed to be used and was now bludgeoning the potatoes, holding the beater in one fist. George, said Leonora sweetly, I'm almost finished with these, and if you'll wait a minute, I'll help you. George dropped the egg beater into the bowl from a height of six inches, swore softly at it while we all watched to see if the bowl would fall off the stove where it was teetering precariously, smiled at it when it, when it did not, and sat down at the table next to George, sat down at the table next to George L., and poured himself a glass of wine. Thanks, Leonora, he said. I guess it needs a woman's touch. I flipped two of the tuna fish steaks. Marcy, said Andy, I've never known anyone who knew more ways to cook tuna fish. Where did you ever hear of tuna fish steaks? What are tuna fish steaks? Well, these, I said. They taste different from regular tuna fish. You'll see. I know you can't wait. <laughs> Andy groaned. This house has a fetish for tuna fish, he said. The dinner looked rather awful, spread out on the table. <laughs> the tuna fish steaks were a sickly pinkish gray, the mashed potatoes a lumpy beige, <laughs> the garlic bread much the same color, and the salad seemed too sparse for its bowl. Harry lit the candles so we could turn out the 100-watt light bulb over the table. George L. poured the wine. What shall we toast, asked Harry innocently. I shut my eyes and clenched my fists under the table. I waited. Marcy's impending marriage, said George L., right on cue. I waited for George P. to make some snide remark, but he just looked down at his plate. Maybe Let's forget about that for now, I said. Let's toast Leonora's cream puffs, which we get to eat when we finish this far-out elegant feast. Everyone stared at it glumly. That was a stupid thing to say, Marcy, said George P. Let's not toast anything. Let's eat. No one raised a fork. I figured I should start. I cut off a piece of tuna fish steak and put it in my mouth. It tasted at once sour, greasy, and tough. Leonora <laughs> tasted hers. Why, it's delicious, Marcy, she said, most unusual. Everyone else seemed to be eating garlic bread. Great garlic bread, Andy, said Harry. Great salad, Harry, said George P. Nice wine, said George L. Potatoes aren't too bad, said Andy. Everyone was chewing. Congratulations on Harvard, said George P. to Andy. Thanks, man, said Andy. Yes, George told me you were going to be a research fellow at Harvard next year, Andy. That's marvelous, said Leonora. Well, I was really happy about it, said Andy. I looked around. The salad was gone. The garlic bread was gone. The potatoes were almost gone. The table seemed to be crawling with half-eaten tuna fish steaks. <laughs> taught playwriting at uh, City College for three or four years, playwriting workshop, and that's where I met Margaret Gilbert, who you were about to meet. And uh, I think the first uh, time I met her, she turned in a, a script, because there was supposed to be some criteria for getting in the course, and, and she seemed to be starting on the wrong track, was saying, this is really terrible, and gave me something, and I, and, uh, and I looked at it, and it wasn't terrible at all, and I said, why do you think this is terrible? And she said, well, I showed it to some professor, and he said, I didn't know how to write a play. 
Well, I, I saw what, what he meant. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, you're, you're going to hear something which is uh, very special. You know, she absolutely does know how to write plays. They're her own uh, special brand. Um, the work that she's been working on, and it comes out in, in volumes, uh, mostly takes place in England. I thought at the beginning it was quite remarkable that this American girl writing about England seemed to know nothing about either place, but was writing with great specificity. Uh, so the work had enormous charm and allure. Uh, and then I realized that she knew exactly what she was doing, and that the landscape she was describing was a very personal and very strange and violent and, and perverse and sexual and mysterious and, and elusive and dramatic landscape, which is, I think, what Wilmotson plays. So I'll give you Margaret Gilbert, who will give you a kind of smorgasbord of a play called Staircase, and, and it isn't everything by a shot, but I think you'll... No, no, I won't. You're not you, doing you, that. You, you have to do that. I have to do what? <laughs> you have to present Staircase. <laughs> I just present you said, you see, this is, it's quite, I, I luckily only teach one day a week. What do you mean I present staircase? Tell people who the characters are. No, I don't know who the characters are. I've been watching it for years. They are special people. They will, don't worry. You won't understand a thing, and you will understand everything. It, it's staircase, and they'll see it when it's on its feet. Margaret, take it. It's really scary. <laughs> I'm reading four scenes from my play, Staircase. The first scene, scene, South Kensington, March 1954, Queen's Corner, Cromwell Road, outside the London boarding school, Miss Graves. Which way are you walking? Dixie. Charing Cross Road, Miss Graves. I will walk you part of the way, my dear, for it's grown quite dark, but it's very near my own house. Mrs. Holsters will teach you views on power, responsibility, education, the British press, a constitutional monarchy, the race to the moon, cricket, dancing, and sex. <laughs> Dixie. Why are there only five pupils? <laughs> Miss Graves. Oh, we've had some withdrawals. Not everyone is accepted. But we strive for the better class of girl. Our girls bathe in ivory bathtubs with golden cherubs. One girl tells me she finds it exciting to smoke cigarettes in her bath. <laughs> This is the height of decadence and should be avoided. What do you want from life, Dixie? Dixie, I want to get on, but I scarcely know what to do. Miss Graves, have no fear. I will teach you. The woman you know is inferior, but inferiority is a privilege we wish to preserve. It allows us to control men. Here we like small breasts and lean thighs. 
they are tremendously exciting. Would you prefer private lessons? Dixie becomes uncomfortable. She cannot answer. Miss Graves. I take quite an interest in you, my dear soul. A sister's interest, actually. Your father writes me you shall become an heiress. It does him extraordinary credit that he should have chosen such a well-behaved school for his daughter. What is your background? Dixie. I, 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 she can't finish the sentence. Miss Graves, bless you. How very awkward you have been all day. <laughs> she bestows a kiss upon Dixie. <laughs> Dixie moves away from her. Miss Graves, there now. Don't be frightened of me. Generally speaking, I don't like Americans. But I love you. I love you. I quite love you. <laughs> I declare I do. Miss Graves attempts to take her hand. Yes, I quite love you. And if you are odd and awkward and have trouble speaking properly, I shall only be so much more your friend, and that's the truth of it. But you needn't use the towel rack against your door at night. <laughs> Dixie. Please do me the favor to be silent, Miss Graves. Miss Graves, you are too marvelously funny. Huh? Ha <laughs> ha! Dixie, you must understand, Miss Graves, you are a simple-hearted child of the North American step. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure I shall enjoy giving you private lessons. Would you care to see my collection of brass toasting forks? <laughs> Dixie, finishing her sentence, that your behavior offends and disgusts me. Miss Graves takes her hand. You must learn to be more natural, Dixie. My, Dick, my dear Dixie, be more natural, do. <laughs> Dixie withdraws her hand furiously. Let me go, Miss Graves, do you hear? Instantly. This moment, blackout, scene, Charing Cross Road, April, 1954, a cheap hotel in Charing Cross Road. There are rubbed away places in the wallpaper of faded flowers, and a scene is lifted where it is curling inward. Jack, come on, let me teach you. It's wonderful, really. Dixie, hesitantly. I don't know about that. I'm not so clever that way. Jack. Well, we shall have to do something. He winds up the gramophone. The foxtrot is real fun. I could teach you in a few minutes if you'd let me. Have you got a sixpence for the foxtrot? Dixie digs down her purse, then gives it to him. Jack puts the money into a meter attached to the gramophone. The scratching music floods the furnished room. He moves towards her and rests his hands on her shoulders. Jack. You know, I've wanted, I've been trying to see you alone ever since I saw you at that school with that woman. <laughs> Dixie shudders uneasily. Miss Graves. Well, we have managed to meet from time to time and talk. 
Jack. Somehow I thought you might really be glad to see me. Dixie. I am glad. Jack looks at her steadily as if to reply, but he says nothing. Dixie. It isn't that I haven't wanted to see you, Jack. I adore you. Jack. I know that, honey. But you can't expect me to get along just looking at you on the street corner, can you? <laughs> Dixie is silent. He touches her neck. Dixie, you don't want me to do that, do you? Jack, evasively. No, of course I don't. But what am I to do? Dixie, I mean, isn't it enough that I came to your rooms? Jack holds her. Jack, no. <laughs> Dixie, frightened. Then you do. Jack, I want to dance with you. Dixie, but I don't know how. Jack, I said I'd show you. Dixie, let me go, Jack. Jack lets her go. They stand close together. Jack, it's the quick step where the trouble starts. He begins to move slowly, his hands resting lightly on her shoulders. She moves with him. Jack, no, honey, that's not right. Dixie, I said I was no good at this. Jack, make it look small. Dixie does. Jack, now give it more style. Dixie moves awkwardly. It's hard to remember all those things. Jack, pretend like you're Ginger Rogers. You're the most gorgeous girl on the floor, and I've asked you for a dance. Blaggard that I am. He lifts her lightly off the ground. Dixie laughs. You are a blaggard, Jack. Then she stops midway. He puts her down. Dixie, I have got no more romance left with the foxtrot, but Jack embraces her, forcing her to dance with him. Jack. No, you move into me after we cross. Dixie. No, Jack. Really. Jack. Really, Dixie. He kisses her. Jack. Don't you like being so close to me? I like it. He kisses her again. Jack. Tell me you like it too. Please. Dixie yields to him, throwing her arms about his neck. They dance. Dixie, you are my only reason to be alive. They move slowly. There is something very sad about these two dancing. They are both involved in a kind of ecstasy which is out of proportion to the cheap hotel room. Jack begins to kiss her repeatedly on her neck. Dixie responding. Oh, Jack, if only I didn't have to go back. If only I didn't have to go. Jack continues to hold her. The music plays now, but they do not dance. They stand together and kiss. She begins to sob. There is something luxurious in her complete surrender to him. Gradually, he removes her hat. Then his fingers fumble with the buttons on her blouse. All the while, he continues to kiss her. Now her mouth, her throat, her breast. Jack. Now, love. Now, now, love. 
It's all right. It's all right. Gradually, he pulls her down on the bed. They embrace heavily. The needle at the end of the piece makes a bumping sound against the record. Blackout. <coughs> Scene. South Kensington, July, 1954. Dixie is waltzing about a room with high white walls with Lord Binky. He wants something from her. They waltz and waltz about. Miss Graves sits before an elaborate dressing table with silver mirrors which reflect death at work and talks to Mrs. Bright Meadow who stands. There are black vases of white calla lilies about the room. Dixie experiences rapture waltzing with Lord Binky but she wants him to dance closer to Miss Graves. She wants him to move by her. Miss Graves pays no attention to the pair. It is as if they are not in the same room. Now Dixie desperately wants to dance with Miss Graves. They move faster and faster, whirling about the room. Dixie and Lord Binky. Suddenly the two women will disappear. In this scene of captivity with waltzes and mirrors, Dixie appears as a young girl in a white dress upon the brink of life. Dixie and Lord Binky are waltzing to death and silence. Mrs. Bright Meadow. It is queer, but it's the custom of the country. And of course, one can't expect her to be familiar with our <laughs> customs. Dixie and Lord Binky waltz by. Miss Graves. Why not? She applies lipstick color with her fingertips to her lips. Mrs. Bright Meadow. Because she's a barbarian. She comes from America, doesn't she? They freeze. Dixie, overcome with embarrassment. It must be wonderful life. Lord Benke, what? <laughs> Dixie, being famous and sought after, invited constantly to parties and balls. Lord Benke, it isn't like that at all. They whirl. Miss Graves, I don't see what being American has to do with it. Mrs. Bright Meadow. Everything in the world, madam. No sense of civilization. Miss Graves. Of course you might try giving her her medicine. Those pills she's supposed to take. More food. She is quite beautiful. I don't want her to lose her beauty, her charms. Dixie and Lord Binky waltz by Miss Graves and Mrs. Brightmeadow. Dixie looks over her shoulder longingly at Miss Graves, who is busy with her eyes in the mirror. Dixie, but people must recognize you for what you are. They must have regard for you. They must love you. Lord Binky, not at all. 
He does a turn. Dixie turning with him as they move away from Miss Graves. I have such a need to be loved, a need to be treated with worth. Worthwhile. I am longing to be, to love and to be loved, to live, and there is no place any more in the world for me. I am a stranger in London, but I am an exile in my own country. I can't go back, but it's very hard to stay here. Miss Graves examines her own beauty, her beauty more closely in the mirror. Mrs. Brightmeadow. No, it's not a good idea. Miss Graves. What? Mrs. Brightmeadow. To withhold her pills. Miss Graves. I just said so. Mrs. Brightmeadow. If anyone saw us, you know, it wouldn't look proper. Miss Graves dabs her face with powder. Definitely. They dance by once more. Lord Binky, would you like to go away? Miss Graves, you and Manners must watch her, night and day. See that she stays in her room. Here's five pounds to guard the door like a watchdog. She presses a note into Mrs. Brightmeadow's palm. Mrs. Brightmeadow, cautiously. She might have another attack. Dixie waves, calls out to Miss Graves. Where? Where would I go? It's not that I don't like London. Lord Binky, bending her back. Well, do you like London? Miss Graves adjusts her evening gown. We're on the brink of shutting down. If the trustees saw her, it would be fatal. Total ruin for my school. We must keep her locked up until I can figure out what to do with her. Dixie tries to get Miss Graves' attention, but Miss Graves refuses to look at her. <coughs> Lord Binky. Perhaps you're unhappy, Dixie. I am so unhappy, I am miserable. They dance faster, whirling and twirling. Mrs. Brightmeadow, timidly. They don't do that sort of thing in America? Miss Graves, rapturously. America, the land of freedoms. Lord Binky and Dixie whirl by. Miss Graves pauses and looks up at Mrs. Brightmeadow, a little woman with a great bird upon the top of her hat. Dixie and Lord Binky are now waltzing like a spinning top. Lord Binky. I should think that all the men you meet would want to make you happy, would fall in love with you. You're very beautiful. Miss Graves examines her own beauty in her looking glass. Dixie, thank you, Miss Graves. You really know very little about America, don't you? <laughs> Mrs. Brightmeadow, America is enormous deserts and lots of factories like up in Yorkshire, <coughs> and everybody goes to Palm Beach for the winter. Miss Graves, no. She opens a fragile drawer in her dressing table and produces an antique musical doll. She turns the music on. This is America. Just look. Dixie calls out to Miss Graves. 
Look, Miss Graves, I'm waltzing with Lord Binky. Don't we dance well? Mrs. Brightmeadow advances slowly. What is it? Miss Graves, an 18th century slave doll. Mrs. Brightmeadow examines it closely with her diamond-studded lorgnette. How sweet! A darky. Black. They whirl by. Dixie calls out to Miss Graves silently. He wants to take me away with him, Miss Graves. I prefer to radio. <laughs> Mrs. Brightmeadow. Negroes. Dixie. Hurt rage. She won't look at me. Why won't she look? Miss Graves shutting the music off. Where is my new lipstick? Mrs. Brightmeadow. I don't know, madam. Miss Graves. Yes, you do. Now, where is it? Mrs. Brightmeadow withdraws a silver lipstick from her handbag. Lord Binky kisses Dixie. Mrs. Brightmeadow. It's too purple. I don't like it. Miss Graves. Give it here. Dixie pulls free from him. He vanishes into the shadow. She stands alone on the other side of the white room, staring at Miss Graves and Mrs. Brightmeadow. Mrs. Brightmeadow hands Miss Graves the lipstick. Miss Graves. Oh, don't pout. Come. Let's do a quick dip in the bath, and then we'll go to the Fitzcherry. Dixie. Please, look at me, Miss Graves. Mrs. Brightmeadow looks down at the floor with embarrassment. Miss Graves con continues to eye her and refuses to look at Dixie. She offers herself to Mrs. Brightmeadow as if she is a dish of caviar. Like me, my dear. Miss Graves advances. That's it. All women are attractive if you really like them. Mrs. Brightmeadow, bolder. I don't like them unless I think they're attractive. <laughs> she gasps. You're very attractive. Dixie runs towards the two women who move away from her. Miss Graves. Real beauty is rare. Mrs. Brightmeadow. It has no place in today's modern world. <laughs> the two women recede into the shadows. In rage, Dixie approaches Miss Graves' dressing table. She throws Miss Graves' bottles and cosmetics and expensive perfumes against the walls. She smashes the mirror, and she takes Miss Graves' clothes out of her closets and throws them in heaps upon the parquet floor. She pulls down the heavy drawn curtains upon over the French windows. Then she stops, turns in fear, and silently moves towards a huge window which she opens. She steps out onto the balcony. Blackout. Scene. South Kensington, May, 1954. Dixie's quarters. The boarding school.
She is taking a bath. Manners, the doorman footman with flaming red hair and a shabby, grubby black jacket, comes in. Blind with sleep, he pushes his way into the bathroom. She draws her knees up to her chest. Dixie, no, you can't come in here. He opens his sleeping eyes. Then he sees Dixie. He grins slowly. She shivers. Dixie, get out. He stands over the tub looking down at her. Manners. Pardon me, miss. Dixie, frantically. Well, why don't you leave at once? You've no right to be here. What are you doing here? She grabs a towel. I'll report you and you'll be fired. That's what I'll do. Manners. Your trunks are packed. I put the cases out on the pavement. She stands up. Dixie. You crazy servant. I'm not leaving just yet. Manners. I called a cab. Dixie. Get out of here. Manners. Yes. He turns to go but stops. Manners. What happened to Miss Graves, huh? Tell me, what did you do? Manners puts a grubby hand on her white bare shoulder. Dixie, terrified. Get out! Get out! You fool! He shoves her. She slips in the tub and falls. Water splashes. Manners bends over her. What happened to Miss Graves? He flicks off the light. Dixie screams, terrified, again and again. Gradually, there is silence. Then the sound of a dripping faucet. Blackout. So stay around and have some wine with us, okay? Mm -hmm.